Oh my gosh, you guys, I had such a hard time deciding what to cover this episode. At this point, those of you who have seen this episode's name and thumbnail know more about what I chose than I do. Hello, Earthlings and Spacelings. Welcome to the Fantasy Podcast, your portal to science fiction and fantasy books you'll probably never read and maybe never heard of. Was it too weird or too old? Did you already see the movie? Whatever the reason, we'll summarize it here. I'm your host, Erica Brickley, the crazy lady who organizes her books by color one day and by author the next. You can follow me on Instagram at Erica Brickley. If you're on YouTube, remember to comment, subscribe, and turn on notifications to keep up with episodes. Let me know what you'd like to hear about. This is the Classics episode. Choosing a book for this episode was really difficult. I wanted to review C.S. Lewis's Out of the Silent Planet, but then I realized that maybe it would be weird to summarize a book without having read the whole trilogy. This is known as the Space Trilogy and includes Out of the Silent Planet, Paralandra, and That Hideous Strength. I have read the first two already. The third is the length of those two combined, and I got distracted by another book, so I haven't gotten around to finishing the trilogy yet. So, just in case, I will finish reading that while working on other episodes. <laughs> well, if not Lewis, who should I read? I keep little piles of candidates in my office, and I look through them sometimes. I stared at them for a bit, then I asked my husband for a tiebreaker. He chose Fantastic Voyage by Isaac Asimov. Okay, we'll go with that. I plan to talk about an Asimov at some point. However, I started examining the cover and read this. The most amazing story you will ever read as four men and one woman journey into the living body of a man. A novel by Isaac Asimov based on a screenplay by Harry Kleiner. Oh man, I wasn't planning to talk about any books based on screenplays, at least not for a while. The reason this one was on my shelf is that I bought it and the sequel at a book sale years ago, and I haven't gotten around to reading them. I didn't realize it wasn't an original story, even if it is an original iteration. Hmm, so what now? I had three more in the pile without going back to my library in search of other quote-unquote classic novels. I decided to start the rotation from scratch this season, rather than pick up where we left off last season, mostly because I couldn't decide what weird book to talk about. So this episode is supposed to be a book that's old and or influential. In the past, we covered The Neverending Story, The Voyage of the Space Beagle, and Herland. If we get really good at this, maybe I'll come up with a theme for each rotation, but for now, I just try to keep a certain amount of variety in terms of subject matter, author, time period. Why not go with that? Let's pick a book based on when it was written. And yet again, crap. Two of the three remaining books in the pile were written around the same time. Red Planet by Robert A. Heinlein and The Martian Chronicles by Ray Bradbury were both completed in the late 1940s. Since Flatland by Edwin A. Abbott came out in 1884, making it an extreme outlier, I decided to focus on the remaining two. Somehow, these are both books about the planet Mars. (laughs) They both have great covers. Do I choose the pulpy-looking story about two men and their friend the puffball alien? Or do I write about the upsetting highs and lows of telepathic civilization? So, I did what any half-baked social media personality would do. I posted about it. I shared a poll on my Instagram story, on threads, and in my YouTube community tab. Surely my small yet passionate audience would have an opinion on Heinlein versus Bradbury. 
However, I was wrong. <laughs> Most people looked at the poll picture and moved on without choosing an option. I didn't get enough responses to feel like I really knew what people would be interested in. <sighs> Do I have to make a decision by myself? Okay, it's time to be an adult and choose something to write an episode about. The best I can do is look back at the episode I just finished, Cluster by Pierce Anthony, and look ahead to what I have planned for the WTF episode and decide what would create some variety. At first, my choice was based on the fact that Red Planet has a white puffball alien as one of the main characters, and we just heard about all the non-humanoid aliens in Cluster. So I thought, let's save the Heinlein for another day and talk about Ray Bradbury's The Martian Chronicles. It won the polls by a slight margin anyway. And yet, all that said, I was still hesitant to cover that book. If you listened to season one of this podcast, you'll remember me saying that I tried to pick quote-unquote classics based on how influential yet relatively unknown they are. I don't want to cover books like Dune or Lord of the Rings that have been covered a thousand times already. In the case of The Neverending Story, the movie has been talked about a lot, so I wanted to break down the beauty of the book. In the case of Herland, it is very old yet enduring in its concepts while being largely unknown. I also think about authors I want to review. For example, Isaac Asimov is one of the greats, and I definitely want to cover his work, but he is best known for his Foundation series and his Laws of Robotics. I want to cover something of his that people may have heard about, though not read, and now that Fantastic Voyage is off the table, due to being based on a screenplay, I have another book in mind for later. And similarly, if I want to cover Ray Bradbury, one of the juggernauts of American fiction, I need to choose something besides Fahrenheit 451, since that one is not only popular, but a reading assignment in high schools everywhere. I think most people who know Bradbury probably remember The Martian Chronicles because of the TV adaptation from 1980, and anyone who hasn't read the book might be surprised to learn it's a series of short stories that were later compiled. And this is what really gave me pause. I don't really enjoy reading short stories that much. Or rather, I tend to burn out while reading collections of them. I love Anne McCaffrey's The Smallest Dragon Boy, but I haven't read anything else from her collection, Get Off the Unicorn. In high school, I read a few stories from Future on Ice, edited by Orson Scott Card, and I really loved those, but I only made it through three of the 18 stories, Robot Dreams by Isaac Asimov, Portraits of His Children by George R. R. Martin, and Tourists by Lisa Goldstein. Similarly, the last time I tried reading The Martian Chronicles, I burned out about halfway through. It isn't one narrative, but many smaller ones happening on Mars. Even though this book was most popular amongst the few people who responded to my social media polls, I didn't feel confident about it. And another Bradbury book popped up that I want to cover another time. Ugh, back to the book pile. I wondered if I should suck it up and go with the oldest book on my shelf. The aforementioned Flatland, A Romance of Many Dimensions. As I said, it was written by Edwin A. Abbott in 1884, though he published it under the pseudonym A Square, like how J.K. Rowling published Hogwarts textbooks using the fictional author's names. <laughs> in the introduction to the book, the British mathematician Banish Hoffman hypothesizes that this was also to create some distance between Abbott and Flatland, since it was so different from his other works. He normally wrote anonymously about religion and worked as a school headmaster in London. According to The Annotated Flatland by Ian Stewart, the book is meant to comment on the hierarchy of Victorian society through allegory, but has endured as an examination of dimensions published when Albert Einstein was just five years old. 
The introduction is beautifully written, going on about how open-minded Abbott was to write a book like this despite not being a mathematician himself. Hoffman writes that the book makes it clear that we may be able to escape some dimensions, such as jumping from 2D to 3D, but there is no way to escape time, except through enduring works like this one. Hoffman says, Time, the tyrant, holds sway in flatland as in our own. Relativity or no relativity, we still have only one dimension more than the creatures of Abbott's imagination. We still have only three spatial dimensions to their two. The inhabitants of Flatland are sentient beings, troubled by our troubles and moved by our emotions. Flat they may be physically, but their characters are well-rounded. They are our kin, our own flesh and blood. We romp with them in Flatland, and romping, we suddenly find ourselves looking anew at our own humdrum world with the wide-eyed wonder of youth. That was written in, I believe, 1952. Scrolling through the Wikipedia pages for Abbott and Flatland, there's some interesting stuff here. He was never known for the book in his lifetime, passing away in 1926 at age 87, yet it still birthed an extended universe. A spin-off story was written by Charles Howard Hinton, who coined the term Tesseract, in 1907, and sequel stories came out in the 1960s, including The Dot and the Line by Norton Juster, best known for The Phantom Tollbooth. These were followed by works in the 80s, 90s, and 2000s inspired by the original Flatland story. Interestingly, these books were not written by sci-fi authors, but by scientists and mathematicians, titling them things like Sphereland, Planiverse, Flatterland, and Spaceland. Wikipedia also lists several films from the 60s, 80s, and 2000s, like one based on Juster's The Dot and the Line. The book seems to have had a resurgence in the early 2000s because two animated movies came out in 2007 based on it. (laughs) There was Flatland and Flatland the Movie. We'll talk about those more later. Additionally, an episode of Star Trek called The Loss was inspired by Flatland, though it mostly focuses on an empathic character losing her powers while the ship is caught up with a bunch of flat creatures that aren't well explored. This character says... I feel as two-dimensional as our friends out there, in the universe but barely aware of it. By the end of the episode, however, she realizes that the 2D creatures are plenty emotional, so much so that her senses were rattled. I watched a video by the YouTube channel Reverse Angle to get a feel for what this episode was about, and I will link it in my own YouTube description. They didn't like the episode, joking about one-dimensional characters and saying, maybe the writers pulled the script out from that two-dimensional universe. That's why it didn't have any depth. Ha. I would probably agree, but I can see what the writers were going for if they based it partly on Flatland, which is meant to be about emotional geometric shapes. It's just clumsily incorporated. Well, we're down in the weeds now. (laughs) Might as well commit to reading Flatland, A Romance of Many Dimensions. Unfortunately, my Dover copy doesn't have a cover for me to describe. It's just some abstract color blocking and says, The fourth dimension, humor, satire, logic combined into a science fiction classic that has entertained generations. It says this in such a disjointed way that I have to really stare hard at the font layout and colors to read that sentence. I actually learned about this book from a friend who'd gotten his hands on a bunch of boxes of sci-fi and fantasy books and was going to let me have whatever I wanted before he sold the rest. I totally disregarded Flatland at first because I thought it was a mathematical theory thing. (laughs) I wasn't exactly wrong, but my friend insisted I take a look at it and I brought it home. 
What I can say is that the inside illustration is nice, drawn in the old-timey style. It's kind of a map surrounding the title of the book. Towards the bottom, we see labeled spots. Point land, no dimension. Line land, one dimension. Flat land, two dimension. And space land, three dimension. These are each accompanied by a visual explanation. A point for point land, a short line for line land, a square for flat land, and a drawing of a cube for space land. Above these four lands is a mass of clouds where sits the name of the book, Flatland, a romance of many dimensions. In these clouds, we see the partly obscured titles of other dimensions. Four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. You have to look close to see these. They blend into the line work of the clouds, which seems intentional. Based on everything I've seen, there are four dimensions who are capable of understanding something about each other, and then there are many other dimensions, such as the fourth, possibly time, that are beyond our complete understanding that affect us all. Before we begin, I'll quickly read you the introductory materials. Flatland, a romance of many dimensions, with illustrations by the author, a square. It is dedicated to the inhabitants of space in general, and H.C. in particular, this work is dedicated by a humble native of Flatland in the hope that even as he was initiated into the mysteries of three dimensions, having been previously conversant with only two, so the citizens of that celestial region may aspire yet higher and higher to the secrets of four, five, or even six dimensions, thereby contributing to the enlargement of the imagination and the possible development of that most rare and excellent gift of modesty among the superior races of solid humanity. Preface This part of the book actually says that it is the preface to the second and revised edition, 1884, written by the editor. But I believe it is simply part of how Flatland was originally published, meant to immerse the reader further into the fantasy of this world in the same vein as Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them by Newt Scamander, a.k.a. J.K. Rowling. I agree that she is problematic, but the literary comparison stands, so I'll just go with it. To be clear, I'm referring to the textbook written in 2001 and designed to look like it really belonged to Harry Potter as a student. The movie franchise about Newt Scamander, by the same name, was not conceptualized until much later. She also wrote Quidditch Through the Ages under the name Kennelworthy Wisp. A more serious comparison might be Heart of Darkness by Joseph Conrad, the inspiration for the film Apocalypse Now, which was written in second person. The whole story is being spoken out loud and communicated to the author. It is not the teller's story, nor the author's, but mainly that of someone else. This preface is written as though by a friend of the author, a man from our dimension, who became acquainted with a square from another dimension. He says, If my poor flatland friend retained the vigor of mind which he enjoyed when he began to compose these memoirs, I should not now need to represent him in this preface. Basically, this fictional preface explains that this book has been popular enough to warrant a second edition, but the square is too old to fully articulate what he wants to say about it, so this human friend is helping out. To start with, the square wants him to explain how it is that beings in flatland can perceive length and width, but not height. More than that, how can a line be seen and its length understood if it has no thickness, no height, no depth at all? Please keep in mind that Abbott, who wrote this book, was a teacher writing in academic circles about mathematical concepts. For anyone who has been out of school for a little while, let's take a moment to review the basics of geometry. First you have a point, 
It has no dimension at all. On a graph, it goes nowhere. It simply exists where it is or is moved to. Next, you have a line, which has one dimension, length. It might have two ends, points, or one end or no ends. It has length, but only left or right. Next is a plane with two dimensions, length and width. A square or other basic shape is included here. It has sides made out of multiple intersecting lines that make angles and enclosed areas, but no thickness at all, flatter than the paper it's drawn on. And finally, you have a solid with three dimensions, length, width, and height. Cubes and spheres and other items that exist in 3D space are in this category. Geometry is all about measuring points, lines, shapes, and objects. Returning to the book, which was written by a two-dimensional square, <laughs> we learn that the people of Flatland understand that they are long and broad, length and width, but can barely understand height even after witnessing it in Spaceland. He understands that the people of Spaceland can't comprehend a world that is only 2D, for how can you perceive something that is less than flat? But that is because they are accustomed to three dimensions. A 4D being would similarly struggle to understand a 3D world. Everything is relative. What about lines? How can you see a line if it has only one dimension, length? The square explains that it has no height, but it does have brightness. If you were to ask his fellow Flatlanders about the unrecognized dimension that is somehow visible in a line, they would say, ah, you mean brightness. And because he cannot measure what it is he means to communicate, they dismiss him. And apparently, the square has been living in prison for the last seven years due to his heretical talk of thickness, and the chief circle, something like a high priest, visits him annually to see if he's any better. Since the square cannot explain height to another flatlander, the square has remained imprisoned. He claims there is a dimension like length and width that cannot be measured, and therefore no one believes him that it exists. Again, if a 3D person could glimpse the fourth dimension as it acts upon other spacelanders, but couldn't explain or measure it, who would believe him? Quote, Well, that is my fate, and it is as natural for us flatlanders to lock up a square for preaching the third dimension as it is for you spacelanders to lock up a cube for preaching the fourth. Alas, how strong a family likeness runs through blind and persecuting humanity in all dimensions. Points, lines, squares, cubes, extra cubes? We are all liable to the same errors, all alike the slaves of our respective dimensional prejudices. Unquote. The preface author goes on to say that the square would like to defend himself against critics' notion that he is not in favor of women, though the author admits his terminology is a bit muddled in flatland ideas and can be difficult to interpret. Even in Spaceland, it is only recently that women's stories have been given any real consideration. This begins to touch on subjects that are not well described here, such as the difference between straight lines and circles in terms of social class, and reminds the reader not to think that every minute detail about daily life in Flatland corresponds to something in Spaceland. We must read the square's full account to understand it all. Part 1 this world. Be patient, for the world is broad and wide. Section 1. Of the Nature of Flatland The people of Flatland do not call it that. This name is merely descriptive for readers who live in 3D space. Quote, imagine a vast sheet of paper. Unquote. How is this possible? If you place a penny on a table and look down at it, you will see a circle. 
If you then lower yourself to the table's edge, you will see only a straight line. This is the same for a square or a triangle. This is how Flatlanders see each other. How then do they know friend from foe? Section 2 Of the Climate and Houses in Flatland Flatlanders have a natural attraction to the south, and rain always comes from the north. So they understand the four directions easily and build their houses accordingly. However, delicate females and the elderly are less good at this, and polite members of the male sex will always inform them which way is north as they pass each other in the street. Houses do not have windows because light is everywhere, though no one quite knows where light comes from, and the legislature has recently banned all talk of it. The square writing this account is the sole inhabitant of Flatland who knows about the heavenly bodies that produce light, thus the mockery and imprisonment he faces. Houses are usually five or six-sided, which is regulated, and the points and lines used to construct them are described. Men enter from the west, and women from the east. Section 3. Concerning the Inhabitants of Flatland Flatlanders' roles in society are determined by their shape. Straight lines are women. Triangles are low-class workmen, such as merchants, with isosceles triangle soldiers being the lowest due to being so thin and pointed that they almost resemble straight lines. Equilateral triangles with equal sides are the middle class. Squares are gentlemen and professionals, like physicians, along with pentagons. The author is in this category. Hexagons and other shapes of many sides are nobility, going all the way up to those simply referred to as polygonal. When the number of sides become so numerous they disappear, a person is a circle. These are the priests, the highest class of all. Sons always have one more side than their father, thus rising through the ranks over generations. The mother, a straight line, adds one more side to the father's total. Unfortunately, this is not always true with triangles, the lower classes. Isosceles sons might have slightly more equal sides than their fathers, but no extra sides. Circular priests will arrange marriages to try to direct births towards being equilateral, and families have to be very disciplined over generations to make it happen. When isosceles parents have a rare equilateral child, it is bittersweet, since the child is given to equal-sided parents out of fear that associating with non-regular triangles will result in slipping backwards. Relapses in class aren't uncommon. The people of Flatland are subject to laws of nature that are often strict and balancing, such as the tendency for particularly unpleasant, sharp isosceles triangles to be incapable of leading themselves or reproducing in any great number. And the ruling classes of circle and polygons tempt the lower classes out of rebellion by making the leaders noble and promising the masses that they will be noble too one day. Every rebellion in history has ended this way, with the isosceles triangles left at the bottom to fight among themselves. Section 4. Concerning the Women Quote, If our highly pointed triangles of the soldier class are formidable, it may be readily inferred that far more formidable are our women. For if a soldier is a wedge, a woman is a needle. Unquote. And it's true, women have particular powers. A straight line can make itself almost invisible by situating itself so that the viewer perceives only a single point, if they are paying attention. Side note that apparently eyes and mouths are the same organ in Flatlanders, taking in light and sustenance equally. 
Her eye is bright, while her hind point is dim as an inanimate object, acting as a cap of invisibility. Isosceles triangles with their sharp points can wound and even kill, so straight lines put others in even greater danger. How can one avoid collision with a near-invisible needle? Here are the rules. 1. Females must enter houses on the eastern side in a ladylike manner. 2. Females in public must keep up a continuous peace cry or risk the death penalty. And 3. Females who come down with illness that cause sneezing or other involuntary movements are instantly destroyed. The author goes on to briefly mention customs in other parts of the world, such as requiring females to wiggle their backsides, be followed by a son, husband, or servant, or remain in their homes. Such restrictions are rarely helpful, usually leading to increased domestic violence. In short, women are capable of wiping out whole towns when they go into hysterics, so the female code must be enforced. This protects them as well, since their delicate bodies might shatter in the carnage. Fortunately, there are certain behaviors that usually come naturally to women, such as swaying their backside. The undulating wives of circulars are imitated by the lower classes. This is good, because momentary passion predominates reason in the thinner sex. Lacking any angles that encourage reflection, forethought, or brain power, they are liable to fall into fits of fury and kill their families without remembering it. Therefore, women's apartments are designed to restrict their movements. Less intelligent isosceles triangles who don't adhere to manners and custom might find themselves massacred, thus thinning the herds of lower classes. High-class consorts are required to face their menfolk with their bright eye at all times, though this can lead to an endless string of chatter and scrutiny, so middle-class women are often more enjoyable company due to being allowed to turn their backs and get on with their household chores. Women never have anything of import to say. Spacelanders would be justified in thinking that women's living conditions sound deplorable, and they would be right. Straight lines live within necessary constraints without being able to progress in status. One woman, always a woman. At least they have no memory to recall their discomfort, nor forethought to anticipate more of it. This is the only way Flatland can continue to exist. Section 5. Of Our Methods of Recognizing One Another Flatlanders do not have shade to give depth to light, do not have two eyes, do not have color, do not have the ability to get a top-down look at their fellow shapes. Instead, they use their hearing to identify friends and even several social classes. They feel each other to learn more with strict introductory protocols. They infer each other's angles and they use their sense of sight. Section 6 of Recognition by Sight Although all figures in Flatland appear equally line-like to the eye, the truth is that there are some differences, especially among the upper classes who live in temperate climates where there is fog much of the year. The author includes diagrams to demonstrate how an equilateral triangle and a pentagon look different to a Flatlander approaching them, due to things like the brightness of their point in contrast to the distance of their other angles. Fog causes things near and far to dim at different rates, thus helping the viewer guess at their size and shape. It is far from a surefire method of identifying people, especially in a crowded ballroom, but it has its use cases. People go to school and university to master these methods. The higher classes do not feel at all, instead relying mostly on sight, being sent to seminaries rather than public school to be raised with this different set of manners. Sight recognition is a luxury. 
The best thing a young shape can do is stick to one or the other. For failing university exams means being unable to survive in upper-class society with sight, while also being ill-equipped to work among people who feel each other. Nowadays, such failures are usually imprisoned or exterminated to prevent the rebellions and mischief they cause. Section 7. Concerning Irregular Shapes Not all flatlanders are regular. Not every woman is a straight line. Not every artisan triangle has two equal sides. Not every quadrilateral is a perfect square, like our author, whose usual profession is that of a lawyer. Length depends mostly on age. Women start out at maybe an inch and can grow up to a foot long, and the total length of a man's sides might come to two feet or more. But the equality of those sides is more important. Sides and angles that are entirely equal are prized. The whole system is based on regularity, the equality of angles. To have irregular sides and angles is not just to be unique or different, but to be morally lacking or even criminal. It is far from being the norm. Some believe that this behavior is the result of irregular shapes' treatment from birth, forced into living the lowest possible existence under constant watch. He is either exterminated or relegated to government desk work without being allowed to marry. However, this has not been confirmed. In the interest of the greater number, irregular beings are kept out of the way. It's too hard to understand them without feeling every single side and angle, since life is easier if you can assume another person is regular, that they'll fit through your door, that they won't get stuck due to looking very different than expected. The author personally thinks irregulars tend to live up to their bad reputation, though he's not willing to go so far as to suggest infanticide. There are some great men in history who were irregular, whose minds Flatland would have suffered without. Section 8 of the Ancient Practice of Painting Despite having all the battles, conspiracies, tumults, and factions that are expected of people in Spaceland, the truth is that, artistically, Flatland is quite dull by comparison. The only differences in one's field of vision come from brightness and obscurity, without color or other types of beauty. Their one exception is the story of Chromatistes, a pentagon who discovered the rudiments of color and decorated his home, his family, and himself. He was entirely visible, unmistakable. Everyone from triangles to dodecagons began to partake in this new fashion, save for women and priests, who both have no true sides, being both made of only one continuous side without angles. This was known as the Color Revolt, a time of immorality and glorious delight. Armies were now orange and purple, red and blue, mauve, ultramarine, vermilion. It was a time of art and poetry unlike anything known today. Section 9 of the Universal Color Bill The lower classes began to rise up as color began to replace feeling as a way of identifying people. They no longer needed to worry about poking anybody, so they should be treated like any other shape. Suddenly, the ruling classes had to deal with a potential revolution. Even the priests and women should be painted to indicate where their front and back are. Such was the brilliant thinking of an irregular circle among their ranks. It made women and priests identical from certain angles, making the women feel powerful and the priests demoralized. The result of all this would be the downfall of the aristocracy. Section 10 of the Suppression of Chromatic Sedition War and conflict broke out, and it seemed like anarchy might win until a terrible incident shook the states of Flatland. An isosceles triangle painted himself to look like a twelve-sided dodecagon and seduced a noble girl who had previously refused him. 
Women all over were startled by the incident, and they began to reject the universal color bill they had previously been excited about. The circles seized the moment and sowed uncertainty among the masses, using old rivalries to pit them against each other, reigniting jealousies, ambitions, and fears. The bill was ultimately rejected, and the circles led a massacre against the revolutionaries, using the deadly power of the women. Infighting began, and the leaderless triangles no longer fought back. A sense of balance was restored. The use of color was abolished, a total prohibition. Only circles and certain teachers are allowed to speak of it or use it in advanced mathematics. Only the chief circle knows how to make the paint and hands the secret to his successor on his deathbed. Section 11. Concerning Our Priests That's enough explanation for now. The square writing this account has set the stage as much as he feels necessary, leaving out less interesting things like how shapes move around without feet, how shapes build without hands, how shapes farm, eat, write, and so on. However, he still wants to touch on the role of circles, the priests of Flatland. These are the administrators, directors, orchestrators of everything from art to business to science. They determine the direction of every field, though they are themselves not the working hands. The truth is that there is no true circle, only a polygon with so many sides it stops mattering. Once you reach over 300 sides, one shape feeling another would not be able to tell exactly how many sides there are. If recognition by feeling were allowed within the upper class, where recognition by sight is relied upon for the sake of propriety. This creates a layer of mystery, and the chief circle is simply assumed to have 10,000 sides. Nature's law, which the author has touched on now and then, would normally dictate that each new generation gets one more side if they are not a lowly isosceles triangle. But this is also not quite true for circles. Very few sons, proper shapes, are born to circle families. But when there is one, it is not uncommon for the son of a 500-side circle to have up to 600 sides. Those few born to the upper elite are themselves even more excellent. And the parental drive towards excellence pushes these sons even harder, for it is possible for circles to have their sides broken as children to create even more sides, though only one in ten survives the procedure at the Circular Neotherapeutic Gymnasium. Section 12 of the Doctrine of Our Priests Attend to your configuration, the priests say. Do not waste your energy thinking that your future depends on will, effort, training, encouragement, praise, or anything but the sides you were made with. Irregular sides must be fixed at the regular hospital, or surely they will end up in prison or under the angle of the state executioner. Do not praise a square for his hard work, but for his right angles. Do not shame an isosceles triangle for his bad behavior, but for the inequality of his sides. That being said, the square author admits that when his hexagonal grandsons blame their own poor behavior on something amiss with their sides or angles or perimeter, he struggles to know how to scold them. This is made even more difficult by the fact that Flatlanders have no sense of ancestor worship, instead respecting their descendants who represent the advancement of society. If everyone is so obsessed with regularity, yet all women are regular straight lines, how can you determine which women would make suitable partners for circles? The answer is that they have state-regulated pedigrees and family histories. However, you might be surprised to know that fixation on a woman's background lessens with status. An isosceles triangle trying to have a four-sided son would never look at a woman without a perfect family history, 
A regular hexagon won't ask for more than a handful of generations. And a circle might not ask at all if they really like each other, since backsliding a few sides when one is already a circle isn't too worrisome. The author wonders if this inconsistent attitude might eventually lead to the circle's undoing. Women are challenging to deal with, rich in emotion but lacking in reason. And the situation got worse 300 years ago, when the chief circle decided that they shouldn't bother with giving women a mental education, or even teaching them to read, providing them with only enough math so as to identify the sides of their husbands and children. This then forces men to live in two worlds, one where they talk of love and hope, and one where they talk of duty and necessity. Men make women feel as if they exist on a pedestal above that of the chief circle, Yet behind women's backs, the men speak about women as if they are mindless organisms. What if a woman learns to read and finds out about this? What if this double think has consequences in future generations? Part 2. Other Worlds Oh brave new worlds that have such people in them. Section 13. How I Had a Vision of Lineland the square-shaped author turned in for the night after a normal day and had a vision. At first he thought it was a dream about straight lines, women, but in truth it was a view of lineland. One long broken line of movement and sound made up of points on the end, women, shorter lines, boys, longer lines, men, and the line segment at the center, the king. The author only realized this was the way of things when he addressed a line as though it were a woman, only to discover it was the ruling monarch of this land. With some difficulty, the author learned about this place. The king of Lineland knows nothing but the straight line of his existence and therefore is sure that it is the entire universe. He can hardly grasp the fact that the square's voice came to his ears, not from along the line, but beside it. Quote, Hearing a voice as if it were from my own intestines. This is because the square's voice vibrated through the king's side until the square placed his mouth, situated on one of his right angles, in line beside the king's eye. There is nothing outside of the line, for that would be width on top of length. And that is the unknown territory of 2D Flatland. No one can see anything but a point in Lineland, for they cannot see each other from the side, cannot pass each other. Once neighbors, always neighbors. The king's wives are impregnated through sound and their sense of hearing, rather than rely on accidents of proximity. Here, the people of Lineland have an eye and a mouth at either end, which the square is surprised by since he has but one eye and voice. That confirms my impression, says the king, that you are not a man, but a feminine monstrosity with a bass voice and an utterly uneducated ear. All men have two point wives, one for each of their voices. Any other number, one or three or other, is inconceivable. Once a week, the laws of nature move the people into dance and song, and the resulting resonance of the marriage chorus creates pregnancy. Each woman has three, a boy and two girls. How else could the balance of the sexes be maintained if two girls were not born for every boy? The king says. Would you ignore the very alphabet of nature? He then goes on to explain the long courtship between individuals through song, distance not being a factor. Section 14. How I vainly tried to explain the nature of Flatland. 
After hearing all this nonsense, the square tries to explain where he comes from, wants to know more about how these people see each other. Of course, when all that is visible in a line is the end point of one's neighbor line, the idea of sight recognition is absurd. You cannot tell the difference between a line and a point that way. Here, space is length. The king can call to his wives, one north and one south, and know exactly when his voice will have traveled the more than 6,000 miles to reach them, and when their answers will reach him. The echo of both his voices and their own inform them about his length. There is no touch here. Women, points, are very delicate, and therefore everyone keeps their distance. Voice is the essence of one's being and cannot be faked or mimicked. Their hearing is much better than the squares, who can barely make out the returning chirrups of the king's wives. What the square saw from the outside can only be imagined by the king as the insides of men and women, for his world exists in a single ongoing point. The two have a discussion about left and right, which are different from north and south. The square removes himself from Lineland to demonstrate, and at first the king thinks him dead or her, since his single mouth resembles a female points. As far as the king can tell, the visitor disappeared and reappeared without proving anything. Outraged by the king's claims that he is a woman, the square shouts back in return, proclaiming that he is a line of lines far superior to the king of Lineland, despite being only a middle-class citizen of Flatland. Just as the king charges at him and the people of Lineland sing their deafening war cry, the square wakes up at home. Section 15. Concerning a Stranger from Spaceland It is the last day of the 1999th year, and tomorrow is a new millennium. The square relaxes with his wife while their sons and grandsons retire to their rooms. He wonders about something his bright hexagonal grandson said when they were talking about how 3 squared equals 9. 3 times 3 is 9. The boy wondered if then 3 times 3 times 3 would be yet another number. This is impossible, for there is no such thing as 3 cubed in Flatland. Suddenly, the square feels a presence, and someone unseen replies, The boy is not a fool, and 3 cubed has an obvious geometrical meaning. The married couple are quite startled, but calm down enough to insist on an introduction. They see what appears to be a woman, yet perhaps round, yet changing its shape in ways impossible for anyone. The square's wife approaches to feel this other person, and is horrified to discover that it must be a circle, the sort of person that should never be touched. I am indeed, in a certain sense, a circle, the person says, and a more perfect circle than any in Flatland. But to speak more accurately, I am many circles in one. The square's wife leaves them to talk, and the hourglass indicates that the year 2000 has arrived. Section 16. How the stranger vainly endeavored to reveal to me in words the mysteries of Spaceland. The square inspects his visitor, and is shocked by how round he is, the most perfect circle, yet so much more complex. He apologizes again and again, since feeling a circle, a priest of the uppermost classes, is incredibly rude and punishable. The stranger wants to know how much the square understands of space, and triumphantly discovers that indeed he knows only that it is length and breadth indefinitely prolonged. He seeks to show the square a third dimension, a place that a square could only see had he another eye on his side a concept the square can only understand to mean an eye in his stomach. 
The stranger proceeds to explain that he looked upon Flatland with ease, understanding everything by sight through his vantage point. The square, his wife, his children and grandchildren in their rooms, their isosceles servants. He came not through the northern roof, nor from up or down, right or left, but from another direction. When this fails, the stranger changes tactics. He points out that even though the square's wife is a line, she is not one-dimensional. She is really a very, very thin parallelogram with some breadth as well as length, all of which the square knows and understands. She has some thickness up and down, some left and right, and some other that is perceived as brightness. The square is not convinced, so the stranger tries to explain that flatland is a flat plane, as if the shapes there float on the surface of a liquid without sinking or rising. The stranger only looks like a circle to them when he cuts through their plane as he does right now. He was able to see the square's dream of Lineland, and asks him to recall how it was speaking to the king, how he had to insert part of himself into the unbroken line of their existence. Only a single side of the square could sit on the line to make himself visible. So too can the stranger only make a small part of himself visible. The only way the stranger can prove that he speaks the truth is by passing in and out of Flatland so that the circles of his body change size. A sphere dipped in water at first touches only a small area, creating a small circle. And that circle becomes bigger as the ball is submerged halfway so that the full diameter is surrounded by the surface of the water. The square is startled by the growing and shrinking and vanishing of the stranger, for he cannot detect the rising he speaks of. When the stranger is out of sight, the square can still hear him, as though through his heart. The stranger, who the square has begun to think of as a sphere, despite lacking full comprehension, tries again. Tell me, Mr. Mathematician, if a point moves northward and leaves a luminous wake, what name would you give to the wake? A straight line. And a straight line has how many extremities? Two. Now conceive the northward straight line moving parallel to itself, east and west, so that every point in it leaves behind it the wake of a straight line. What name would you give to the figure thereby formed? We will suppose that it moves through a distance equal to the original straight line. What name, I say? A square. And how many sides has a square? How many angles? Four sides and four angles. Now stretch your imagination a little and conceive a square in Flatland moving parallel to itself upward. What? Northward? No, not northward. Upward. Out of Flatland altogether. If it moved northward, the southern points of the square would have to move through the positions previously occupied by the northern points. But that is not my meaning. I mean that every point in you for you are a square, and will serve the purpose of my illustration. Every point in you, that is to say, in what you call your inside, is to pass upwards through space in such a way that no point shall pass through the position previously occupied by any other point. But each point shall describe a straight line of its own. This is all in accordance with analogy. Surely it must be clear to you. And the conversation continues from there until the square becomes quite upset and rushes the stranger. Section 17. How the Sphere, having in vain tried words, resorted to deeds. The square moves to attack the sphere with his sharpest point, but the person slips away out of his dimension. Why will you refuse to listen to reason? The sphere asks. 
I had hoped to find in you a fit apostle for the gospel of the three dimensions, which I am allowed to preach once only in a thousand years. He decides to try deeds instead of words, and the sphere begins to list everything he can see. The contents of the cupboards, the hiding places of money, the location of the keys. To prove his point, he reaches into the cupboard, retrieves an accounting book, and transfers it to the opposite side of the room, just as the square goes looking for it in the cupboard. He laughs at the square's horror. What you call space is really nothing but a great plane, he says. The sphere ascends higher to get a look inside the theater, the neighbor's house, and so on. He even pokes the square in the stomach, in his very insides. Unable to take this torment, the square does his best to pin the sphere against the wall while calling for aid, ignoring all pleas to not let anyone else know this secret that is the culmination of a thousand-year wait. The sphere realizes that there is only one more thing he can do. Section 18. How I Came to Spaceland and What I Saw There the square screams in horror, dizzy and disoriented, certain he is mad or in hell, but a voice assures him that it is simply knowledge. He reluctantly opens his eye to see the full shape of a perfectly circular being, though they are all enclosed and he is not looking into their organs at all. It is the sphere. The fear the square felt for this person turns into worship as he perceives spaceland, then is shown his own pentagonal home from above. He can see the rooms, his family, the doorways, his wife looking for him. They rise farther and farther, and the square is shown the vastness of flatland. Cities, mines, mountains. The square says that this is like being God, but the sphere points out that this skill alone would mean that even the thieves of spaceland are gods in flatland. There is more to divinity than sight. They visit the High Council, who have a great meeting every thousand years. The notes taken at the last great meeting make it clear that others were visited by Spacelanders in the past and told people what they experienced, only to be labeled insane. However, the square is sure he is different, that he could explain space to a child and not risk imprisonment as he preaches the gospel of three dimensions. To prove that this task will not so easily be done, the sphere jumps into the counselor's midst, then away when the isosceles guards come forward to trap him. When he disappears, the counselors merely speak of the last time this happened and arrest the guards to ensure that this strange secret never gets out. Sadly, this includes the square's brother, a clerk. Section 19. How, though the sphere shewed me other mysteries of spaceland, I still desired more, and what came of it? The square is unable to move through spaceland without the aid of the sphere, so he can only watch his brother be taken away. The sphere consoles him and distracts him with the mechanics of a cube. It is difficult for the square to understand what he is seeing, since differences in light and depth are new to him. Rather than simply look at it, the square is encouraged to touch it and understand. While enjoying the knowledge being bestowed upon him, the square wants to know even more. No longer does the sphere look entirely perfect, for surely there are dimensions and forms beyond this one looking down at their seemingly tiny perspective. The square wants a look at the sphere's insides to fully understand what he is. The sphere scoffs at this, wanting to continue with lessons in cylinders and other 3D shapes so that the square can bring the gospel of three dimensions back home. But the square is stubborn. If he has just seen the intestines of all his flatland countrymen by the sphere's power, then the sphere should be able to follow suit. 
for surely he has knowledge of the fourth dimension, from which the entirety of spheres can be perceived. The square's mind has jumped ahead to the next level. Just as Flatland is more vast than Lineland, as Spaceland is more vast than Flatland, surely the next dimension is more wonderful still, for there must be yet more dimensions. A point is one point, a line is two points, a square is four points, a cube is eight points, so the next dimension would have sixteen points. At length, the sphere admits that there have been reports of beings descending into Spaceland claiming vaster knowledge, but there is no consensus. It could be Thoughtland, for all they know. Now the square is really excited. What about a fifth dimension, and beyond? He talks so long without heeding the sphere's warnings that he is thunderstruck by his sudden fall out of Spaceland back into Flatland, with one final glimpse of the boring world laid out beneath him. Section 20. How the Sphere Encouraged Me in a Vision The square keeps his adventure to himself and reflects on what he saw. How to explain upward, yet not northward, to another person. He falls asleep and sees the sphere again, who guides him on a vision to point land, where a single individual point is their entire universe. What joy, what beauty, what happiness! The square's shouting is perceived as its own complex thoughts, adding to its brightness and pleasure. Afterward, the sphere teaches the square how to explain space to Flatlanders, encouraging him to aspire to something greater, not just more dimensional. Section 22. How I tried to teach the theory of three dimensions to my grandson, and with what success. The square awakes a prophet, full of joy, and is about to start teaching his wife when he hears a proclamation that anyone perverting the minds of the people with ideas of beings from other worlds shall be imprisoned. So, the square decides to start a little slower, without any mention of his extra-dimensional guide, choosing his mathematically-minded grandson who jumped to the conclusion of three-squared. Unfortunately, the young hexagon is well-bred and listens to the laws laid down by the circles. The proclamation has scared him into remaining silent on his previous point, and when his grandpa tries to actually explain a cube, the boy can only laugh. Section 22. How I then tried to diffuse the theory of three dimensions by other means, and of the result. Who next to try with? The square devotes several months to working instead on a document explaining the mysteries of the three dimensions. He calls it, Through Flatland to Thoughtland in an attempt to make it a thought experiment that the authorities will allow, but he's not sure he really has the tools for proper diagrams that anyone will understand. Meanwhile, the square has to deal with the dullness of flat life after seeing something more. He neglects his clients while trying to hold on to those fading memories. Even the idea of a cube is receding from his mind. How can he convince the highest circles in the land when his own grandson won't take him seriously? His frustration leads to slips as he voices his displeasure until he can barely sit through priests' talk of why it is that two dimensions are a divine fact. Eventually, the story bursts forth and the square is arrested. While no one exactly believes his testimony, the square is allowed to live comfortably in prison. If he really did see the third dimension, then surely someone there can lift him out of prison and prove their existence. They'll leave him alive to find out. After seven years, the square is still there, with occasional visits from his brother. And after all this time, his brother has never grasped what it is the square is trying to explain. 
The millennial revelation seems to have been made to him for nothing. He is like Prometheus, but the people did not accept the gift of fire he brought. More and more, the square wonders what around him, if anything, is real. The End Wow, I don't know about you, but this book is a reminder that people came up with some weird stuff hundreds of years ago, the same way they do right now. It gets more surreal the more material I find that was based on Flatland. Reading it, I thought the sphere who visits the square was a human being, who the square could only comprehend as a series of spheres, but now I'm not so sure. Every illustration and adaptation I've seen of Flatland shows a literal ball-shaped person visiting Flatland and flying around with the square. <laughs> this really is a fairy tale shaped like geometry. Or speculative fiction about dimension hoppers along the same lines as Interstellar. That whole movie is about beings interacting with each other despite not existing on the same dimensional plane. At less than 110 pages, including the introduction by Banesh Hoffman, this is the shortest book I've covered on this podcast so far. In some ways, it reminds me of Herland by Charlotte Perkins Gilman, which was published 30 years later and focused more on exploring a new country than on a typical narrative, though the characters do have their own short arcs. Edwin A. Abbott takes us on a romp through Flatland with brief glimpses of Pointland, Lineland, and Spaceland, introducing us to concepts and imaginary culture through the eyes of a pretty standard middle-class gentleman who is only a little more flexible of mind than his contemporaries. That seems to have been a pretty standard framing device. I will be honest that I'm not sure I'm the right person to examine the complexities of this novel in full. It's about math praised for foreseeing Einstein's concepts. It's about the United Kingdom in the 1800s. It's about social class and heresy and gender politics. It's about indoctrination into rigid society and religious structures. It's about interpretations of or analogies for God and angels. It's about speculation around the future of society with reference to a version of the year 1999, right before the new millennium. The best I can do is draw parallels where it's already pretty obvious in the text. Gentlemen and nobles are superior to soldiers, a la Jane Austen novels. The color revolt sounds a bit like the Renaissance, uh, an explosion of art and writing whose equal has yet to be seen. If the book is as much allegory as it is fantasy, much like The Neverending Story by Michael Ende, then Abbott clearly thought that society was flawed, that it had become too rigid when there was more art and color to be had, more equality between people and even the sexes. This is one of those books that I think is largely satire, blowing everything out of proportion. But in this day and age, that can be hard to spot. I wasn't entirely sure what to take seriously in the first few sections. There are a shocking number of men out there even today who believe women are all one way, deep down, and that a strict social order inside of which women are deemed inferior is the key to comfort. Men's success comes at the sacrifice of women's happiness. Or perhaps women should just be happy with what they have? They don't get to be professionals. To quote the 2003 film Latter Days, they get to be wives and mothers. Did Abbott believe women should be treated this way, or was he just writing about this particular culture, or is Flatland meant to hold a mirror up to society and say, really? This could even be a case like Robert A. Heinlein's Starship Troopers, which is about an authoritarian society, but has sparked debate about whether Heinlein himself believed in authoritarianism or was just following an idea to a conclusion. Let's just take a closer look at Flatland for now. 
In the second dimension, the laws governing the lives of female straight lines are kind of funny to me, almost like Asimov's three laws of robotics. It's not a simple question of oppression or proper place. Men have to think of rules to prevent themselves from literally being killed or otherwise harmed by the non-men around them. As far as I can tell, Abbott was writing about the extremes of Flatland to point out to his countrymen how silly it is to put human 3D women in social boxes. Women don't kill people by simply moving around too much. Women are capable of remembering past hurts and foreseeing future agony. We are very much not straight lines that need to be controlled, but brains in human bodies, just like our male counterparts. Gender is a spectrum, so please forgive me for talking in binary terms this episode. There was a time when simply acknowledging women were capable of deep thought was very open-minded. Similarly, Abbott was making it clear that people, men in general, are not shapes. We are not sh circles, squares, and triangles that fit neatly into 2D boxes. Men might see themselves as very particular things that are different and more varied than women, as if they have a certain number of angles, when really we are all shaped more or less the same. Why put all women in a single box, then sort men into lots of silly, simple boxes? It's ridiculous. Abbott seems to want the reader to think it's ridiculous. And yet, ridiculous as it is, perhaps it is human nature to categorize and assign arbitrary rules, to assume the lower classes are violent, stupid, and unorganized, as if they are predictable, dangerous triangles little better than women. And yet, it's made clear that the upper classes use various tricks to manipulate these people. Even if the difference in shape and integrity has some basis, the Flatlanders admit that you can't always tell the difference between two people without a detailed feel, for it's easy to confuse a 10-sided person with a 12-sided person, and vice versa. At some point, rank starts making men look the same, and ranking them gets sillier and sillier. Intelligence is often equated with physical angles, and we all know humans are more complicated than that. Parts of the book make it sound like Flatland is pretty cut and dry. Straight lines, women, have to live a certain lifestyle or they risk killing everyone around them. Regular sides and angles equal moral goodness, and more sides means one is more noble. Then again, the author admits that there are irregularities. He's not sure whether criminals come from nature or nurture, though he's sure women have nothing worthwhile in their brains. Again, I think Abbott purposefully included ridiculous points that are very easy to poke holes in. The life of shapes is too black and white. There are actually lines in Flatland that remind me a lot of Jonathan Swift's essay, A Modest Proposal in which he suggests the poor feed their babies to the rich since they are worthless as people and make so many babies anyway. Swift also wrote Gulliver's Travels in 1726, over a hundred years before Flatland was written, and that is also a fantastic social satire. Gulliver visited many countries where impossible things happen, yet much of what he sees is an allegory for the ridiculousness of what was, for him, modern day. I wouldn't be surprised if Abbott was inspired by his work, especially based on this line from page 31. The art of healing also has achieved some of its most glorious triumphs in the compressions, extensions, trepanings, colligations, and other surgical or dietetic operations by which irregularity has been partly or wholly cured. Advocating therefore a via media, I would lay down no fixed or absolute line of demarcation. 
but at the period when the frame is just beginning to set, and when the medical board has reported that recovery is improbable, I would suggest that the irregular offspring be painlessly and mercifully consumed. Abbott really commits to the square author's perspective and prejudices, which I'll again compare to the book Herland from episode 10. Even while discussing revolutions started by isosceles triangles, the square can't bring himself to give them any real credit, explaining that any good ideas they have are thanks to high-class members among their ranks, often irregulars, who were allowed to live and spread dissension. And he can't bring himself to praise women too much, in a way that's reminiscent of later work by Joanna Russ called How to Suppress Women's Writing. Abbott is clearly aware of the layered problems with flatland society, since the sphere who takes the square on a trip to Spaceland says that many 3D people find the straight lines and their emotions to be much more admirable than the supposedly reasonable minds of the circles. Something about their invisible flying around reminds me of A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens, which predated Flatland by about 40 years. I also quite like how Abbott plays with the similarities between women, straight lines at the bottom of society, and priests, circles at the top. Since the circles represent anything from religious leaders to government administrators, I won't pick apart the allegory too much here, but it seems like Abbott wanted people to think critically about those who direct society without needing to get their hands dirty. Returning to the ridiculousness of the culture presented, while working on this episode, I took a family road trip one weekend and listened to an audiobook when it was my turn to drive. I've already read Jane All's The Clan of the Cave Bear a couple times, but it's been a few years and I wanted to try listening to it on the drive. As a quick disclaimer, I know that the Earth's Children series isn't perfect. The main character is incredibly white, complete with platinum blonde hair, for an early homo sapien who lived at the same time as Neanderthals, and she is something of a superwoman in the sequels. I used to think the whole point was to follow the very first blonde woman's life, the ancestor of all blonde-haired people with that particular color mutation. But I don't actually know if she is the only blonde person in the series, so throw that hypothesis out the window for now. <laughs> we'll just take the book as fantasy based on the science available at the time, which All herself admits to taking a few creative liberties with. I've personally only read books 1 and 2, so my knowledge about everything beyond comes from Crystal Starlight's reviews on Goodreads. She gave the first book 5 out of 5 stars, the second book 3 stars, the third through fifth books 2 stars, and the sixth book just 1 star. <laughs> After her raving review for The Clan of the Cave Bear, she starts her review for book 2, The Valley of the Horses, with this line, I've never seen a series take such a downturn so fast. <laughs> You can seek Crystal Starlight out on Goodreads if you're curious, but she inspired me to skip the rest of the series and keep my good memories of the first book. Anyway, why am I bringing this up? Well, while listening to Cave Bear, it occurred to me that there's a similar sort of feminism going on within Jane All's book and Edwin Abbott's Flatland. Both series ask the reader to imagine a social structure that is similar to what we know as Westerners, Americans, Europeans, etc., or far stricter. We've just reviewed Flatland, where female straight lines exist at the bottom of the hierarchy due to their inherently dangerous, needle-like physical form. In The Clan of the Cave Bear, we become intimately acquainted with a tribe of Neanderthals for whom the difference between men and women goes beyond basic physical differences, having been baked into their racial memories. Men are incapable of cooking, just as women are incapable of hunting. 
This is an imagined society where culture and instinct are intertwined. When you introduce a Cro-Magnon human, who pretty much resembles humans as we know them today, and ask her to conform to life with nonverbal, barrel-chested, bow-legged people whose expectation of conformity goes far beyond basic social constructions, you get an interesting story. <laughs> this modern human girl wants to do more than be female. She wants to ask questions, to use weapons, to hunt. She is at once traditionally feminine, desiring a child and learning the healing arts, and incredibly athletic and talented with a sling. She doesn't fit in. I think that stories like this really make it clear that human women should not be placed into a single solid box. It's really easy to think women need to stay in their place, whatever society has decided that is, as if the structure of society depends upon it lest we all fall into anarchy and chaos. But the truth is, women are not straight lines. They won't needle somebody to death simply because they move around too vigorously. They won't always fly into hysterics at the first sign of trouble. Women are not Neanderthal females. They won't endanger the family by choosing to do something besides cook or carry luggage, as if men are incapable of doing those chores. The truth is that both sexes, and the bodies that fall in between, are strong and able to do everything that needs to be done. Whatever Abbott thought about homosexuality or other progressive topics, I think he was realistic in his understanding of society. What's the harm in letting women out of their homes, letting them make their own decisions? Men and women are more than shapes and lines. We are more similar than that. This point is driven home in section 12, when the author of Flatland wonders if everyone is suffering in their efforts to keep women in a box of ignorance. Just as shapes are equated with their number of sides, claiming that irregularity of form leads to irregularity of behavior, women are equated with their emotional natures. They are not trained to be anything else, and will therefore continue to decline mentally. This is where you can really see Abbott's social commentary coming through, since this logic can be applied to all sorts of scenarios. Are minorities in Western countries prone to poverty because of their skin color, or are they treated like they are prone to poverty? Are women worse at math and science because they are too emotional, or are they bad at things they were never taught to pursue or focus on? I especially love what Abbott says about how women think about this. Among women, we use language implying the utmost deference for their sex, and they fully believe that the chief circle himself is not more devoutly adored by us than they are. But behind their backs they are both regarded and spoken of, by all except the very young, as being little better than mindless organisms. Who says chivalry is dead, eh? Because this is how Flatlanders think of women, it's pretty amusing to see the square author be mistaken for a woman while he's in Lineland. This is a fun reminder that different cultures have different markers of masculinity and femininity, as well as different marriage customs and cultural habits. In Lineland, every man has two wives. More or less is perverse, impossible. And every man has an eye and a mouth at each end of their body. So, since the square has only one mouth and eye on one of his corners, the king of Lineland perceives him as a stunted man. The square is at once offended at being called a woman, and indignant that the king cannot recognize the near godliness of a shape observing lines. This situation perfectly mirrors what happens when the sphere visits his home. At first, the square thinks this person is some sort of thief rather than a demigod, and he even stoops to the same level as his wife when he insists on feeling every non-existent angle of the sphere rather than relying on recognition by sight, the way upper society is supposed to. As his wife says, feeling is believing. 
Considering that Abbott was a minister who wrote a lot about theology, I'm impressed with him for writing a story that suggests gods or angels may be mortals in other realms who can simply see more than we can, that priests are not all divinely gifted men of inherent worth. I suppose it's a lot like the Chronicles of Narnia, or the Space Trilogy, since C.S. Lewis was a religious man, yet wrote speculative fiction that dared to imagine that the fabric of the world was different from what the book of his faith told him. I could also point to Richard Matheson's What Dreams May Come, which presents a version of heaven that is really just layers and dimensions above the physical world we're aware of, with God looking down on it all without interfering. If you like this kind of theological philosophy, I'd highly recommend that book and movie. Though the Robin Williams film has some awkward pacing and editing, the visuals are incredible and really stick with you. Like Narnia loosely follows parts of the Bible, I think Flatland is a loose interpretation of the story of Jesus, or someone like Jesus. For those of you thinking of Life of Brian, that's not what I mean. And maybe not Jesus, but someone like Moses. The square is just a normal person indoctrinated into the flow of his society, who is then chosen to receive a message from above, a gift of knowledge meant for all his people. The square compares himself to Prometheus, if humanity didn't accept the gift of fire, but his story reminds me more of a Jesus character, since Prometheus was a divine person who betrayed the gods, and Jesus was supposedly a normal man with a message. Just as Jesus was killed, so was the square imprisoned, possibly for the rest of his life. I think the implication is that perhaps something the square says, be it his grandson or his brother, will stick and slowly become a philosophy, a cult of thought, a religion, a movement. The idea that Spacelanders try this every 1,000 years may or may not be a reference to time being measured partly by the birth of Christ. Again, I'm really not a theology student. Hash it out in the YouTube comments for me, will ya? The preface in which Abbott writes as though he is a friend of the imprisoned square drives home the point that the book was not written as an instruction manual for how to treat women, but as a mere observation of how Flatlanders view their straight lines. The square author's feelings are on display, but not Abbott's own. Touching back on the Herland comparison, Charlotte Perkins Gilman wasn't necessarily making an argument that men should be done away with. She was pointing out that a world focus on carefully parenting the next generation might be more harmonious and beneficial than the structures we've relied on thus far. She made a clear choice to write from the perspective of an American man, not from that of a woman whose home is invaded. The beauty of the women's land is shown to those who can contrast it with their own sorry state of society. In Flatland, the square gets a glimpse of the wide, wonderful world of Spaceland and wonders what other dimensions are out there that we live within yet are unaware of. And had he spent more time there, he might have come to understand why Spacelanders found the treatment of straight-line women distasteful. However, if we readers are 3D spheres, we have to ask ourselves how very different we are if we, too, put women into metaphorical boxes. This again brings up the question of whether or not the sphere who comes to give the square the millennial revelation is actually a human, in the same sense that the reader is, or is in fact a simple sentient sphere. Are humans with arms and legs and so on part of a greater dimension? Or are we amalgamations of spheres? I'm not entirely sure. <laughs> then again, I'm not sure Abbott was that worried about the exact details. It's pretty amusing the way he skips over certain things like how shapes farm and eat as if they're not interesting. <laughs> In this way, Flatland is very different from Herland, since the latter goes into a lot of detail about how life works. 
but that's a 3D story, isn't it? Unfortunately, we can't play our favorite game today because my copy of Flatland has a very simple abstract cover. Doing a quick Google image search, most of the alternatives feature some of Abbott's diagrams featured throughout the book, which you can see in my YouTube video of this episode, or interesting geometric or abstract art. The main appeal of my copy of the book is the claims it makes on the back cover. This is the seventh edition of a perennial science fiction classic about life in a two-dimensional world, Written by a noted Shakespearean scholar whose hobby was the study of higher mathematics, it is still a first-rate fictional introduction to the concepts of relativity and multiple dimensions of space. Besides being fascinating reading, Flatland will help you understand certain aspects of modern science better than most texts. A very clear description of how three-dimensional objects must be perceptible to two-dimensional beings will offer you a very helpful technique for imagining and visualizing multi-dimensional forms such as tesseracts and hyperspheres. However, the movies have a lot more cover art to look at. As I mentioned during my introduction, there are several film adaptations of Abbott's work. Let's go over them quickly. First, there was a 1965 illustrated short film by John Hubley that you can watch on YouTube, which I have added to this video's description. It does a pretty good job of portraying the scene where the square is lifted up out of Flatland by the sphere, though I haven't been able to watch the whole film to see what else it does well. Next, there was Flatland, aka Flatlandia, in 1982 by Michelle Emmer in Italy. I have also linked that. Though I can't understand everything they're saying, it gives its own take on the 2D world through stop-motion. I like how it shows the glass shapes from above and from the side to demonstrate the concept of flatness. It goes into detail about the geography of Flatland, including how rain falls from the north, the hierarchy of society from straight lines on up with the associated customs, the way triangles have rebelled at times, the color revolt, and even how recognition by sight works. This film even plays with the concept of brightness, since a point on the shapes glow to indicate who is speaking since all the characters are the same color. Towards the end, we see a recreation of the square author's home based on Abbott's original diagram and witness the conversation he has with his hexagonal grandson, followed by the square's dramatic glimpse of Spaceland and beyond. In 2007, there were two different films. The one called Just Flatland by Laud Ellinger Jr. is rather hellish. The shapes look like diagrams of cells from science class, and the story starts with a president circle losing his son to the rigors of the neo-therapeutic gymnasium and proceeds to show political conflict and the strife of irregular people. Fortunately, it quickly jumps into the meat of the story with the square getting a look at Lineland and the sphere visiting his home. However, the whole thing falls apart when the Sphere takes the square to Spaceland in his, um, spaceship? <laughs> the Sphere is seriously creepy looking. It's gold and has little arms and has these bulbous red eyes. <laughs> There's a lot of flying around and seeing the Sphere City. It's all very weird. I can't decide if the animation is decent or just weird. And then it ends with a war in Flatland, I think? I don't know, it tries to end on a deep note with maybe the square seeing high-dimensional beings right before the credits roll, but I'm not sure I get it. The other 2007 film directed by Dano Johnson and Jeffrey Travis, Flatland the Movie, 
features a more quality voice cast with Martin Sheen, Kristen Bell, Joe Estevez, Tony Hale, and Michael York. This film has more appealing graphics than the other 2007 movie, though there are so- all these weird textures that muddle the colors in a way I, I don't really like. Makes them look dirty. But the illustrators were definitely trying to pull off something like Elementals, Zootopia, a B-movie, or the Emoji movie, but with flat shapes. People live in cute houses with roofs and refrigerators. There are no straight lines. People are squares, hexagons, and so on. We're introduced to a dystopian world of labor, office jobs, and administrators through conversations between Arthur Square and his granddaughter, Hex. I did like the joke about squaricles instead of cubicles. (laughs) Their relationship is a bit like Marlin and Nemo in Finding Nemo, with a strict fatherly figure and a very curious child. It's a simple yet imaginative world. Arthur whose name might be in reference to Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, as well as to the fact he's called A-Square, has dreams of visiting the other dimensions. He sees a self-absorbed single inhabitant of Pointland. He sees the King of Lineland, who exists on a single line segment, which follows Abbott's original diagram very closely. This is where the muddy look of Flatland starts to play a role, since it makes the world seem slightly transparent as the character Spherius passes through it. In both 2007 films, it is a literal sphere visiting, not a humanoid person. Unfortunately, the sphere's face is kind of creepy in this film, too. The expanded plot follows Arthur as he discovers that Spacelanders left artifacts in Flatland a thousand years ago to help them find the truth about dimensions, though the circles have forbidden anyone to explore them in the style of 1984, and search for the prophet who knows about it. I quite like the Spaceland sequences. The last third of the film is dedicated to a giant manhunt as Arthur's granddaughter runs off to explore the artifacts. In this version, Arthur is not the chosen prophet. Hex is. A full-scale revolution ensues against the circles, and it's implied that there are other greater dimensions Spherius is unaware of. Again, link in the description. It's only 30 minutes long. It's still a mystery to me how two very similar films about a very old novella came out the same year. While researching, I also stumbled across a short film on YouTube called 60 Degrees, a Flatland film, that was animated by Hannah Williams. It's only two minutes long and might be a student project, but I like how it depicts an incredibly bleak world of shapes, showing the heart-wrenching moment a baby equilateral triangle is taken from his isosceles parents to be raised in better society. Aside from these animated films, I also found a few live-action ones. A cheesy sci-fi TV series called Flatland aired in 2002 that covered interdimensional battles and martial arts. In 2017, Caspian Films produced a version of the story told through interpretive dance performed in an urban setting. And in 2019, a South African movie called Flatland came out that was directed by Jenna Bass and tells the story of three women struggling in the modern world. It seems a bit like Thelma and Louise, plot-wise, though I can't actually be sure that the name is based on Abbott's novella. As for other media, we already mentioned the Star Trek episode during the introduction, and Wikipedia lists several other references in shows like The Orville, Futurama, and Gravity Falls. Basically, deep lovers of sci-fi, physics, and social criticism love this book and find ways to slip it into their work. And now you, too, understand the appeal of Flatland. I want to end by taking a minute to appreciate the structure of Abbott's strange little book. It's like a lot of old novel exploration, written as if by a person trying to impart mysterious knowledge to the masses. 
like Herland or Maximum Ride by James Patterson. Abbott builds the world of Flatland so the reader is immersed in it, then begins to take steps outside of it. The square dreams of Lineland, seeing firsthand how difficult it is to perceive a higher dimension than one's own as he speaks with the king, and it's difficult not to be condescending towards people in a lower dimension, as shown by the square losing his temper and claiming he is far superior to anyone in Lineland due to his lines and angles, including the king himself. It's humorous that his reaction when talking to the sphere is pretty much the same. The square gets so upset that he attacks, just the way the lines did. And when he does fully perceive the vastness of Spaceland, his first instinct is to worship the sphere like a god. And he has to be reminded that that would mean even the lowliest thief in Spaceland is a god, which devalues divinity as a whole. The sphere is careful to think of everyone, even a single point existing in his own tiny universe, as an individual with worth, while being as understanding as he can of Flatland's rigid social hierarchy. The fact that the sphere is not a god is emphasized by his own reaction to the idea there might be dimensions bigger than his own. Just as the square's grandson wondered if there was such a thing as three cubed, the square wonders if there are extra spheres who can look down at 3D Spaceland. It's suggested that there are. Welcome to the end of the episode. I hope you enjoyed becoming acquainted with a square as much as I did. I'd really been dragging my feet on reading this one. If you liked hearing about Edwin A. Abbott and want to hear about more authors of speculative fiction, make sure you subscribe to the Erica Brickley YouTube channel, like this episode, leave a comment, and click the share button. I really had to struggle not to say sphere button just then. You'll want to get notifications because in two weeks we'll be talking about one of the ugliest books on my shelf. Until next time, bye-bye, Earthlings. <laughs>